context. Hear it in the context of the first five verses. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do magnify your name. You, as a God of glory, exceedingly high above us, have stooped to make yourself known to the sons of Adam. That as you walked in the garden with him before sin, even now through Christ Jesus, you come and walk and abide with your people through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to dwell within us. Lord, be magnified before us. Work in us by your Spirit. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word that Christ would be all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The glory of God, the, the glory that God has and in, in, uh, the way the glory is described in Scripture is very different than that of men and the glory of man. Uh, for the most part, people tend to think that if God's glorified, if they're, they're living a life to the glory of God, then somehow they're going to miss out on something. If that's their focus. They're, they're going to have to go without. They're going to have to do without. Um, and you, you see some of this attitude that God is viewed as some sort of killjoy. And he tells them you can't do this or they can't do that or you must do this. Put another way, people assume that if God is being glorified, then they'll be unhappy. So why glorify God? Why do people think this way? Well, the simple answer is because we're sinners. Because of sin, the sin of Adam, original sin, our sin nature, we by nature want to live for our own glory. But children, many of you young children, certainly children of a previous generation, they really know what the answer is. Why are we here? Or what is man's chief end? A number of you children, many of you adults right now are going, well, man's chief end is to glorify God and notice the conjunction and enjoy him forever. The two go hand in hand. Glorifying God does not mean we lose enjoyment. It is when we live our life to glorify God that we find enjoyment. But alas, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is God's glory that makes the invisible God seen. God is invisible. He is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. We cannot behold him, but God displays his glory. Sinclair Ferguson uh, puts it this way. God's glory is revealed in the kaleidoscopic burst of the eternal magnificence of God, of God's being, his character displayed in the created order. By such means, God speaks, as it were, declaring You cannot see me because I am the invisible God, but I clothe myself with these magnificent garments to give you a sense of how majestic and glorious I am. Psalm 29 is a a remarkable psalm. It's 
the context we have the, the uh, there's a clarity that the people of God have assembled perhaps it was on the Sabbath and they they've gathered and there was this majestic storm um, some of us experienced that this past Tuesday evening depending on where you're at just a, a powerful thunderstorm with the claps of thunder that shook the earth and the bolts of lightning that would light up the sky as though it were daytime and the psalm records that event. And in the storm, God speaks. And so those who were assembled that day, though they had not seen God, nevertheless, he was revealed to them in the storm. And the people responded rightly in verse 9, in his temple, all cry glory. The storm reveals something of the glory of God. The disciples, these men who are in the upper room and or making their way to the garden, perhaps they're in the garden as this prayer is being given. The scripture is not clear about that, so it's not necessary for us to wonder about it. But these disciples who are hearing Jesus pray, they have seen the glory of God. And where have they seen the glory of God? In the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes, we find in him the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But he is, they have seen the glory of God displayed as he has done the, the works that the Father has given to him. He has done mighty works in their presence. You remember back in Canaan, back in chapter 2, that they, they were there when Jesus turned water into the best wine that ever has been made. They were there when he calmed the storm, when, when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons time and again, and then when he raised the dead, even Lazarus, the four-day dead man. They were there, and in these things, these men have seen the glory of God on display. Only God can do these things. Only God has this power, and the majesty and the might of God was displayed as these men looked on, as they walked with Jesus. They didn't see God in his glory uh, as it is revealed in the heavens, but they say God saw God revealing his glory through these mighty works done through his Son. It's remarkable that when we consider how Jesus appeared during the days of his flesh, Paul uh, writes in Philippians 2 that he uh, had no reputation. He made himself a no reputation, taking the form of a slave. He who is the king of glory, the king of kings and lord of lords, he's come in the likeness of men and lived as the likeness of a slave. And yet the glory of God was in him, though veiled by Jesus' humanity. He, being the God-man, his deity was veiled by his humanity. But now the hour has come for his suffering. We begin to deal with this text last week and the remarkable aspects of how it is that in the cross and, and Christ's suffering and being inflicted, inflicted and smitten by God displays the glory of God, the power of God, the condescension, the mercy and the grace of God that he would save sinners. And it's in that hour, in this hour of Christ going to the cross, that God's glory is put on display. In this hour, when it seems as though Jesus has reached the greatest degree of humiliation, which he has, even all the way to being laid in a tomb, the writer of the book of Hebrews says to us, Jesus is yet the brightness of God's glory in the expressed image of his person. 
This is what Jesus is praying about. That this expressed image of God, this glory of God, would be displayed in him. We're going to use four main headings this morning, and I'm indebted to uh, Richard Phillips. I'm not quoting him per se, but uh, his structure was helpful. The work given Jesus. Jesus finished his work. Jesus glorified the Father, and then the Father glorified Jesus. These are wrapped up in his prayer. Our theme this morning is that we should see God in Christ glorified in suffering. It's very contradictory to the way the world views things. It was in the cross that the glory of Jesus Christ was revealed. It was in his obedience, even unto death, the painful, shameful of the death of the cross, that the glory of our Redeemer is made known to men. It is here that he finished his work. We begin then with the work given to Jesus. Many of your children are, are mindful that uh, the school is about to start again. Some of you will be going off to school. Many will be resuming studies at home. Some of you are going off to uh, institutions of higher education, some returning, some going for the first time. And you know what awaits you? Assignments. All right? Assignments will be given and they must be completed. But you can reflect back particularly the older ones, when, when you complete an assignment, that paper's written, and there's a certain satisfaction. It's done. It's complete. I've turned it in. There's a satisfaction in it. I, I had that. You know, I don't mow grass now because we're in a condo. But I've, for years, I've mown the grass in my yard, and I found a great satisfaction. The lawnmower is put away, and I walk out, and I look at the lawn, and it's all trimmed to the same uniform like that job is finished, and there's a satisfaction in seeing that work done. Oh, it could have been very hot and sweaty and, and demanding at the time, just like writing a paper can be, and yet there's a satisfaction. Some of you men, uh, you find yourself in situations at work where uh, great burdens are laid on you, uh, a big task. It must be broken down into the parts and in time completed, and there's a satisfaction when it's done. Or maybe some of you other, younger children can relate it to it this way, you you finally obeyed your mother and go clean your room. And then you stand in the door and you look at the room and it's just there's a satisfaction of a job well done and how orderly it is. But there's always a but, right? We all know there will be another assignment. The grass will grow. There will be another project. The room will get messy once more and we'll have to do it all over again. The satisfaction from these things, these these ordinary human tasks, these mundane aspects of our life, the satisfaction we have for them, it's, it's, it's temporary or fleeting at best. But here we hear Jesus praying. He has been faithful throughout all his days. As the God-man, particularly thinking of his humanity, he has left nothing undone that the Father has given him to do. He has done it all. He has completed all his assignments, and he has done them all perfectly, without sin, without error. His is a work that is all finished. Here is one human, the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, who has obeyed perfectly. He, he's the second Adam, who has been faithful in all his house throughout all his days. All that Jesus had laid upon him, he never murmured. Or complained. He was never discontent. He never thought of the work as too burdensome or too hard, even though the work that Jesus undertook to do was very hard. Jesus has done 
the hardest thing at all. He is there in the hour, the final hour. He's come to do it, to do the hardest thing ever done. Now, when did Jesus receive this assignment? When did Jesus get this work? When was it given to him? Well, theologians, we look at the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We see what Christ has accomplished. We have prophecies that speak of him coming to do these things. And what happens is we compare scripture with scripture and applying the right rule of interpreting uh, by good and necessary consequence, we conclude from Scripture that in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, before God spoke and created anything, there was a council. And they determined what they were going to do, and they determined each person of the Trinity what their role would be. Some theologians call it the covenant of peace. That was uh, my systematic professor. That was a term he used. Others call it the covenant of redemption. You look at verse 4, and we see Jesus says, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Back in chapter 4, we heard in verse 34, Jesus say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so Jesus' work is part of the work of the Father. We've heard Jesus declaring that all along, that he only does what he sees the Father doing. The author of Hebrew adds some clarity in the closing benediction. Chapter 13, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Here are echoes and a reference to that covenant that was made within the Godhead in eternity past. This has always been the plan. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.20 that it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Christ would be crucified that Jesus would shed his blood to save sinners. We're in the midst of Isaiah. Uh, we're coming to that, probably the most familiar chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Um, words are just they're remarkable. I read them recently as the elements were being distributed during the Lord's Supper. I turned to that periodically that we would remember the sacrifice of our Redeemer, that he could purchase us. And yet, let us remember, Isaiah is speaking over 700 years before these events take place. But the, the specificity, the detail of the suffering that Jehovah's servant will endure, that endure, that's laid down there, these things were determined by God. There was this eternal covenant that was made within the Godhead, and Jesus has come and he has done it. He, he agreed in the past with the Father, covenanted with the Father and the Spirit, that he would take up on this work. So I want to look at some of the aspects of the work that was Christ to do in this covenant of peace or the covenant of redemption. And I'm going to turn to uh, the giant of a theologian, a systematic theologian, Louis Burkhoff. He lays out three key aspects of the suffering servant's mission. First, uh, he, he notes that God the Son agreed that he would take on humanity and be born of a woman. Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God set forth his Son, born of a woman, made under the law, that he would save us. So he agreed to do this. He agreed that he would uh, take a humanity like ours, our nature, his human nature was like ours. It could suffer, it could hurt, and indeed it did, except he would not have sinned. Adam did not represent this one, this second Adam. His father was not Adam from the garden. His father is God. He is the eternal person of the Godhead, the Son of God. And yet in his humanity, he agreed to do these things. Take our humanity to be made 
under the law to be born of a woman, to be, uh, to be like us, and that he could suffer all the things that we suffer. The second thing that the God the Son agreed was to submit himself to the Father as man. As the eternal Son of God, they're equal in power and glory. There's no um, submission on the part of the Son to the Father through all eternity. But when it comes to the covenant of the peace, comes to the matter of redeeming our people, the Son agreed that in his humanity, for his deity cannot change, in his humanity that he would place himself in subjection to the Father. We've spoken of this before, the, uh, the ergonomic or the economic work of the Trinity in salvation. Part of this, Jesus agreed to submit himself to the Father, that he would be made under the law, that he would be required to obey the law perfectly and to suffer then and die under the wrath of God to pay the penalty not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. He would suffer and die in our place. And after God the Son secured our salvation, including forgiveness for our sins and eternal life, He agreed that he would send the Holy Spirit to those very same people who he died to save. And this is what he's promised. We've seen it just in the previous chapter that he promised to send his spirit to his people. He continues to send his spirit into the world. This was agreed upon in the covenant of peace before the foundation of the earth. And that the spirit would come bringing new birth and giving saving faith. And you see here echoes of what the Holy Spirit agreed to do in that council of peace or the covenant of redemption. But our focus is on the Son. But now I want to turn to what the Father covenanted, or we could say promised, to his Son. He promised he would do certain things. God the Father promised that he would give his Son a people as a reward for his work. That's what God said to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and God promised him that he would have... A seed. Many nations will come from it. More numerous than the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. Now it's a particular number known to God. Even as God knows the number of the host of heaven, he calls them all by name. But when it's our consideration, it's, it's a number that's beyond what a man can count. And the Father promised to give his son such a people. God the Father also promised that he would prepare a body for his son that would be suitable to do his work, and we see that in the incarnation, God giving him a human body that would be joined to his deity in an inseparable union. He's now joined to our humanity throughout all eternity, and yet there's no confusion, there's no mixing, there's no blending, as we rightly confess, Jesus Christ, two natures, yet in one person, forever. The father committed to give a body, make a body suitable for his son. And you remember that it is God who announced this through the angel to the Virgin Mary. And the father sent this Holy Spirit who came over her with power to conceive the son within her. God the father also committed that he would fill his son's humanity without limit with the Holy Spirit. You see that... uh, as Jesus comes, he's fully God, but in his humanity, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from his baptism, being set apart as the Messiah. That means the anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one. He is filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. The Father committed that he would do this, sending the Spirit to his Son to fill him, that in his humanity he would be fully equipped to do all the work that the Father gave him to do. 
God the Father also committed that he would, upon completion, give his Son a name above all names. You think of Philippians 2, as we hear of Christ's humiliation and his humbling himself. And then Paul shifts. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. That is, God the Father has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that every name should bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Father committed to do this before the foundation of the earth. He declared that Jesus would be the head of the church and that he would be the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He also committed that Jesus would serve as our high priest. It was agreed upon that we would have an advocate with the Father forever and ever. This was something the Father committed to him. We have a mediator who brings us to God. And finally, we would consider that God the Father committed to restore to his Son all the glory he had before he came to earth. This is what Jesus is praying about, that God would give him that glory, that he would then glorify the Father. Now, this is not just a list of things for theologians to discuss. These things are relevant to your salvation if these things were not agreed upon, if this was not established by God and his plan before the foundation of the earth, we would have no hope. We would have no possibility to salvation. It's because of what God has decreed. And because of this reality, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united to him by faith, and all the benefits, all the blessings, all the promises become yours in Christ Jesus. It was the will of God that Christ Jesus redeem you. Jesus came and he finished that work. John Flavel imagines the conversation in the covenant of peace. I'm just referring to it in, in a bit. It's, it's a lengthy treatment, but just a little flavor of, of get, getting a sense of what went on. I mean, obviously we're imagining, we want to be careful with these things, but when you consider what was agreed upon and who was agreeing upon it, Flavel helpfully imagines the father speaking to the son like this, my son, Consider this, because this is really focused on who we are. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable sinners that have utterly undone themselves, and I now lie open to my justice. My justice demands satisfaction of them. I will satisfy it with eternal ruin for them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son replying, O my father, such is my love and pity for them, that rather than that they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring all your bills so that I can see what they owe. You, bring them all so that I may know, that so there may be no after-reckoning. Old language, what he's saying, lay the full bill out so that I will know what it is that I pay and that I will satisfy all of it. So there wouldn't be no, oh, by the way, here's, here's one you've forgotten. That's what uh, Flavel's imagined. And indeed, this is what Scripture reveals to us. He says, I choose, this is the Son speaking to the Father, I choose to suffer your wrath that they should, that, uh, that they should not suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me, place all their debt. That's what was agreed upon in the covenant of peace. The son covenanted with the father to pay all that we owe. 
poor, miserable sinners. We, we had nothing to argue with. There's no negotiating with God. As some imagine that they're going to get to heaven and stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to say, but God, consider this. No, you will be on your face before the Almighty. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you will call for the mountains to fall on you, to bear you, to hide you from the presence of this glorious God with whom you would have to do. And so this agreement was made. Jesus is going to pay the debt. And Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me. The work that he was given to do. My friends, you and I are so guilty. We are beyond filthy. If we could think of the most repulsive things that we've ever encountered in the world, and I've encountered some, I won't even describe them in this place, and make you cringe. We're worse than all that. God is infinitely holy. He dwells in unapproachable life, and we are filthy and unworthy. And Jesus was innocent, spotless, and he was merciful. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who are sinners could be brought by Christ to God. What can we render to so glorious a Savior? What an amazing thing that God would agree to do this work to save us, wretches that we are. Indeed, we should render my life, my soul, my all as we sing. But Jesus finished his work. Throughout the record of Jesus' ministry that John has recorded for us, we have heard him consistently saying something like this, I only do the will of him who sent me, and I must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus is coming to do the will of the Father. Jesus never did anything willfully. Jesus never did anything independently of God. He obeyed the Father with every beat of his heart and every breath that he took. And now Jesus knows that his hour has come. He sees the end of his course, that work which he is committed to do. And in this, when Jesus says it's finished, he sees the cross. Now, we, we might say, well, we're not at the cross yet. And we know that from the cross, Jesus will cry, it is finished. But the reality is here that where Jesus is, he's in this hour. And as Augustine helpfully says, Christ says he finished that which he most surely knows he will finish. There's no shrinking back. He will go all the way. Remember, even as the time for him to go to Jerusalem was approaching, one of the gospel writers says he set his face like flint, hard, determined. He was going to the cross. In his human nature, Jesus has finished a life of perfect obedience to the letter and the spirit of the law of God. He has kept the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. You might say, well, that's remarkable. Remember this, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was in the wilderness, and he was hungry. Before uh, looking back at Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and God providing them daily manna from heaven, water from the rock, a, a cloud to shade them, and yet they murmured and complained. Here's Jesus in the wilderness, hungry. And then comes the tempter, Satan. Jesus' finished work that he speaks of here included that temptation by Satan, and yet Jesus prevailed over him in 
our humanity and his perfect humanity. What did uh, Jesus did what Adam failed to do? Again, the contrast, we, we dealt with this. No, I'm not preaching that to you guys, but uh, Tony did in Luke. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in contrast to the temptation of Adam in the garden. Adam had everything beyond our comprehension in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was tempted in the same ways that Adam was. Jesus prevailed in his perfect obedience. He finished that work as well. Paul writes then concerning this uh, contrast between the two Adams. Adam in the garden, the firstborn of creation, made by God, life breathed into him. He had a work to do, and he did not do it. Jesus came as the second Adam, and he did it. And so Paul writes, as through one man's offense, that would be the first Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that would be Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, also also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is what Jesus finished. What remains then is the cross. He must go to the cross and there offer himself up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few weeks ago, as I mentioned, I read from Isaiah 53 during our time when the elements are being distributed. You remember those familiar words? Notice the language. This is verse 5. Speaking of Christ, that he was wounded for our transgressions. Isn't it remarkable? Isaiah's prophesying, but you notice the tense? It's this before the foundation of the world, he was crucified. There's a certainty. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. For whom? For us. Later on in verse 12, he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. There he was, like a thief. A malefactor hung on a Roman cross like he's some common criminal. He was numbered with the transgressors. And there he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, even declaring, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is true that Jesus will utter a final finish. It is finished from the cross in a matter of hours from where he is at this point. He would give up his spirit to the Father. There's no contradiction in that finished and this finished. He entered the final hours, and the course is clear. He's fully committed. A sinless life now lived, and a sin-atoning death, he will soon die. This is why he came into the world, to save sinners. Both his obedience and his death were the work that he finished. For this reason, the Apostle Paul celebrates this for himself and for all who believe. After chapter 7 and the, the, the wrestling, the, the war of sin, the, the progressive progress of sanctification in the life of those who are redeemed, then, Jesus, or then Paul declares, who will deliver me from this body of death? Any of you believers who have sought to walk in obedience to the Lord, you know that cry. Who will deliver me? But I hope that you also know the triumph. What does Paul go on to say? There is now. He first he says, Christ Jesus, but he says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he finished the work. It is finished. There's nothing missing 
from what Christ has done. He has done all of it. Nothing's left out. And indeed, if there was anything, one little thing left out, we would perish in eternity. Christ has finished the work. He has completed what was covenanted in the covenant of peace. It is done. Before we go on, let us consider that it's also true that all those who fail to come to Jesus for salvation shall perish for eternity. You see, if the Father covenanted with the Son that he and he alone would complete a work, secure salvation, suffer and die to save sinners, there is no other way of salvation. If you uh, wickedly assume that you've got another plan, you've got another God, you've got another religion, you've got another way, you will find yourself on that day cast into the lake of fire. Salvation is found in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, came and did all that the Father required him. You don't have any idea what would be required to secure your own salvation, and there's not one of us able to do it. Our hope is found in Christ alone and in no other. He has finished it. He has done that which we could not do, that which we were not willing to do, and we could not even have imagined what we should do for our salvation. Well, thirdly, we consider Jesus' work glorified the Father. You notice the language, I have glorified you on the earth. He's talking about his work. He moves on to say that, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you had given me to do. In God's providence, we're reading through Isaiah We discussed this as your elders in a session meeting when I was beginning to preach John. You know our practices. If I'm preaching from the Old Testament, we read from the New Testament. If I'm preaching from the New Testament, we read from the Old. And suggested that Isaiah would be ideal, roughly in some sense the same length, that we could move through the two together. But as you've heard me say, what's the way, what is that? How is it that I refer to the book of Isaiah? It's the gospel according to Isaiah. We're in chapter 51 now. Have we not seen that? How this good news, and in particular we're going uh, in, into the, the very heart of it now in Isaiah 52, 53, and 54. These two books complement each other. This will become even more evident in the next few chapters. But Jesus' prayer makes it clear that the Father was satisfied with Jesus' completed work. It's also clear that Jesus is satisfied with his completed work. He says, I have glorified you. How can he say that? Just to go back where we begin, children, imagine you've, you've labored over that paper. You've got that assignment done. And you believe you've done it. You, you come in and you offer it to your, your teacher. Maybe it's your mom or it's a professor. And you give it to you. You have a satisfaction. You say, I've done the task. Jesus has that sense. He has completed the work. He knows perfectly what the work is. And he has completed it perfectly. He's been led by the Spirit. And he's fulfilled all that God required. And so his statement is a saddest statement of satisfaction. That he has fulfilled even the words of Isaiah concerning him. Isaiah 53:11. Speaking of Christ, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That's what Jesus is declaring. And and it's going to continue to unfold. Isaiah goes on, by his knowledge, my righteous Savior, servant, shall justify many. Making it very clear the the type of work that Jesus was coming to do. Now, Jesus' prayer names two different glories. One that was his eternally. As God, before creation, as God, he had a glory. 
He's going to talk about that. Lord, and the verse 5, we'll come to that in a moment. Restore that. Not restore, but make it known again. But the other glory that's in this passage comes from the work that he accomplished as the Redeemer while on earth. I have glorified you while on the earth. Christ in his obedience, his doing the will of the Father, has made known and displayed a glory. He has brought glory to God in his full obedience to all that the Father has given to him to do. Now, the word for glory in the Greek is doxa. Even if you young children, you say, oh, we, we sing the doxology. And you're right. That comes right from this Greek word for glory. The sense of it is, and the way it's used in Greek is, it's the idea of a good report, uh, something praiseworthy. It's used in other contexts, but uh, the scripture writers use it to speak of God. We sing a a doxology at the end of our service to glorify God because of what we have seen and what we have heard during the course of our worship service. We hear the good news of the gospel. We behold Christ. We begin early on with the law of God, and we recognize our sinfulness, even from the past week, and we confess our sins, and we are assured of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The glory of God is displayed. We hear the scriptures read. We we approach God in prayer. He receives us because of the completed work of Christ. The glory of God is revealed. We hear the preached word where in this pulpit, typically Christ is preached, Christ is set forth, and we see the glory of God in the person of the Son. And then at the end, we... We've, we've been, we should say, we've been overwhelmed with things about God that are praiseworthy. And we sing a doxology unto him because of what we've seen. Jesus declares that what he has done on earth is a good report. It's entirely praiseworthy. It's all commendable. Now, think of the contrast. We've seen this, particularly back in chapter 6. The Jews were looking for a conquering king. They, they wanted a, a mighty warrior, perhaps like David, to come riding in, to go forth and lead the armies of Israel and destroy the Roman Empire, to, to drive them out for their midst. They were looking for this kind of glory, a man's glory. We get that, don't we? Are we not so easily caught up in what man finds to be praiseworthy? What the world says is of a good report. I was thinking about that last night, thinking about preaching this text to you. It's like you got the Oscars and the Emmys and the, I don't know, the Hemis and the Dummies, whatever all they trot out. And what do they do? They're exalting people. They're saying these are praiseworthy people and they sing their glory and their praises. And what have they accomplished? Rarely is it of good report. Rarely, I mean, you you consider the the media materials that they put out, whether on the screen or otherwise, and whether they're a a musical performer even, most of it is reprehensible and and disgusting. It promotes evil and unrighteousness and ungodliness, not things that are praiseworthy. That's where our world's at. You got social media. I don't know how involved some of you younger folks are, but so much of social media is it's trash. And yet people are clamoring. They want the likes. They want people following. They, they find these things are supposed to be praiseworthy. It's not God's standard. It's what Israel was looking for. And they just could not believe that their Redeemer, the long-expected one, the Messiah, who they were anticipating. At the time that Christ came, there was a, a tremendous sense of anticipation that he was about to come. John the Baptist shows up, and he's heralding that. And so there's this expectation, and then 
Jesus comes on the scene and he begins his ministry. As far as they're concerned, there's nothing praiseworthy about him. It's not what they were expecting. But it's that he is who they needed. And here Jesus, having completed that work, he has displayed the glory of God. He has completed his work. He is the very kind of conquering king that the Jews needed, that we needed. We needed a king who would be willing to suffer and die in our place because if we did not have such a one, my dear friends, we would all perish in unrighteousness. We would be consigned to the lake of fire that burns forever and ever where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If we did not have a king like this king who came into the world to obey his father, even suffer in humiliation. In Christ we see God on display, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and his mercy. This is the kind of king we have. This is why he is worthy of praise. His final act is a suffering servant. On the cross, we see the glory of God on display. And just Jesus said back in verse 1, The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. What's in view? What's he's talking about? He's talking about the cross. We talked about this last week. How stunning that on a cross, the glory of God would be displayed. That glory is because God, the righteous one, justly punished another in our place that we who deserve nothing might have life, life everlasting, and that we could come back as Adam once had it to commune with God, to know God. Jesus, through the cross, brings us to God, that we would know God, that we could fellowship with God, that we would be his children. It's breathtaking. The cross is a place of justice, is where justice and mercy meet. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. My friends, this is so counter to the world, but there is no greater display of glory on earth than when Christ was crucified and completing the work of the Father. And certainly that moves forward to the, the resurrection, the whole package, as Paul refers to the cross. All of that's in view. My friends, we too glorify God when we complete the work that he's given us to do. When we obey God, we glorify God. As a redeemed people justified by free grace, now we are to live our lives in obedience to God. This is what Paul writes in Romans 12. I beseech you now, therefore, brethren. He's writing to redeemed people. I beseech you now, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. This is what Christ has done. Paul goes on. This is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Young people, you already, some of you are fully aware, some of you are growing, becoming more aware. The world has got a different standard of what glory is and what you should do, what it wants from you, what you should expect to do. But no, the Word of God says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not follow after the standard of this world's glory. Paul goes on, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That comes from the Word of God that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of God. So we also will be glorified when we obey Jesus by fulfilling the Great Commission. 
Give us a commandment. Go as you're going. Make disciples, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. We sing and ascribe glory to God when we gather for worship. We ascribe glory to God when we leave this place and go live lives, living sacrifices to the glory of God. We're ascribing glory to God. Even as Jesus says, I've glorified you on the earth, my friends. We are saved to glorify God on the earth. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the glory of God. We reflect his glory on the earth. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Where does that light come from? The word let shine. It comes from being a new creature in Christ, being redeemed by Christ, having the work of God's grace in your life, that Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit inhabits us, and that we live not like the world. We live unto the Father for the glory of God. Jesus' work glorified the Father, and as his dear children, our good works also give glory to God. Paul, at the end of his life, he's right into Timothy, 2 Timothy. And what is he celebrating? He's not saying, I'm like Jesus, I've lived a perfect life, but he's celebrating that as Christ has lived in him and worked in him, as he's grown in holiness, he says, I've finished the race. I've finished the fight. I've kept the faith. Paul, in a small echo of what Christ has done, he says, I've done the work that the Father has given me to do. My friends, that should be our ambition. Never in our own strength, but in the strength of God, through the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus said, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Abide in me, and bear much fruit. For in this my Father is glorified. All of these things coalesce together. They're all related. Our obedient life is based on the obedient life of Christ. We are set free from sin because of the sacrifice of Christ. And he has redeemed us so that we live a life to the glory of God. And if we're not doing that, we're disobedient. And we're bringing shame on the name of God. We're called to live for his glory. But fourthly, the Father glorified Jesus for his finished work. In verse 5 we read, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the previous point, we saw Jesus completed his work, and his work completed on the earth gave God the glory, and it brings glory to Christ. But now Jesus is praying to be glorified by his finished work with the glory that he had with the Father from all eternity past. Jesus prays that the veil, that his humanity, that his humility, that his servanthood has laid over this eternal glory that he has as God. That glory was not taken away. His deity was not diminished. When, when uh, Philippians 2 talks about, in some translation, he emptied himself, he's not uh, taken off his deity and coming to earth. No, it's in, in a marvelous, in a, in a mysterious way, the incarnation veiled the glory that he had as the Father. And so when he walked in Israel, they saw a man. They saw but a man. And you see that even with the disciples. When Jesus would do a miracle, they marveled at who this was, that even the winds and the seas should obey him because his glory was veiled. And now Jesus is praying that this veil would be lifted up so that it would be on full display. Matthew Henry lists four truths that found are found in this request. One, that Jesus is declaring... His eternal deity with the Father. Jesus knows he's God. And he's declaring that clearly in this prayer. 
This is why John declared at the very opening of the gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a theme throughout John's gospel. Secondly, Jesus is declaring that he is eternally full of glory, just as the Father. Henry points out that Jesus took on the work of the Redeemer, not because he needed glory. Let's sink in there. He didn't agree to do this because he needed glory. He already had infinite glory as God. He did it because we need glory. We're poor, miserable sinners. There's no glory in hell. There's no glory in sin. There's no glory in suffering and rebellion and disobedience. God displays his glory in us when he renews us in Christ Jesus that we would live for his glory. When God has remade us as new creatures in Christ, we begin to reflect again what Adam had. Adam was made in the image of God. Stunning, is it not? After his image, God made him. Male and female, he made them. And it was the glory of God reflected in the creation as man dwelt on the earth. The glory of God was radiated forth from them as image bearers. Sin destroyed that. The curse of sin has um, disfigured that. But Jesus came to reverse that, to restore man to his rightful glory, that in Christ Jesus we once more can be image bearers to the glory of God, not a marred and disfigured form, but indeed ones that reflect the glory of God. Indeed, let your light so shine before men, the glory of God in you. The glory of Christ is displayed in his completed work. It's also displayed as he completes his work in us. Thirdly, Jesus' words in his prayer make it clear that he only hid or that his glory was only hid for a season while he did this work of salvation. And now he's come to the end of it. It's finished. He says, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, even in here we are echoes of the, the covenant of peace. Fourthly, Henry points out that now that this work is finished and having completed all that the Father gave him to do, Jesus will ascend to heaven and he will display the glory that is his as God that has been hidden from the eyes of men. But there's something different. When Jesus returns to heaven, there is something that will be forevermore different. Jesus came from glory, fully God. He came in the incarnation and took our humanity. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he took our humanity. And that humanity was glorified, and it is seated in the right hand of the Father, God is a spirit who does not have a body like men, right, children? But when you see God seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There we see the glory of God displayed in a person. Yes, as we begin in the opening, God's works display his glory uh, from creation onward in all the earth. Even in his providence, God's glory is displayed. But we... Behold Christ seated in glory. The host of heaven beheld him, and they sing even now praises to this glorious one. My friends, these truths, the reality is that Jesus has uh, won the victory and set captives free from sin, death, the grave, and the wrath of God in hell. This reality is why we gather on this first day of the week 
to celebrate the completed work of Christ. We come here to be, yes, refreshed and blessed. You know, in some sense, like coming to the hospital and being you know, patched up, prepared to go back out. It's like coming to the armory to have our armor and renewed and our weapons for warfare sharpened. But we come here above all other things to behold God in his glory and to sing praises unto him. Throughout his earthly ministry, the Son of God's glory was hidden from the eyes of men. And yet he spent all his days displaying the glory of God in what he said and what he did. The glory of God is seen in a reflection in Moses. Remember, Moses would come down from the mountain. The glory of God was displayed. He, he would meet with God face to face, and the people said, Moses, you need to veil your face, because it wasn't Moses' glory. It was the glory of God radiating forth from him because he had been in the presence of God. Likewise, upon the completion of the tabernacle and later the temple, God sent down some measure of his glory and that people could not approach because he had filled his place with his glory. All these are visible manifestations of the glory of God. They could be seen and they were terrible to behold. The fullness of God's glory cannot be seen by sinners. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. God hit him in the cleft of the rock, passed by, covered him with his hand, and he saw something to the backside of God because it was not possible. Even in that, Christ mediated the glory of God as he was able to see what he saw. But John, this same John writing this gospel, saw the glory of the Son of God when he appeared to him in the Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 1. And yes, we're drawing to a close very shortly. Revelation 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, or verse 12. As you listen, with the eye of faith, look and see the glory of your Redeemer as he's revealed in the Scriptures. John says, Then I turned to see a voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about... The chest was a golden band. His hair, or his head and hair, were white as wool, as snow, as white as snow. And his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like the fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had on his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who is dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. It's not a literal description of Christ. John, using apocalyptic prophetic language, is giving us a picture of this majestic one. And to me, the, 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 the brilliance of the eyes speaks of his purity, but what's remarkable is that tongue, like a two-edged sword. That's the word of God. My friends, when we read the word of God, and when the word of God is preached, we're beholding the living word, even Jesus Christ. His glory is on display before us. We conclude, my dear friends, let us never again be enamored and enticed by the glory of the world. At best, the glory of the world is the tarnish on a silver 
bowl that is so easily removed is nothing like the precious metal of the bowl. The glory of the world is fleeting. It's but a vapor like a morning mist that the sun burns away. For Jesus, the cross, as we've heard, was the path to the crown. He glorified God by humility and submission. Jesus set us free from sin so that we would no longer live by the standards of the world. The glory of God can and should be on full display in our lives and that we would be that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then he would lift us up. Let the completed work of Christ be on display in your life. My friends, do you see the remarkable beauty of your Christ? Do you see the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ? He left the glory of heaven to come and to live as a humble servant and to die a cruel death, to receive upon himself the penalty for your sins. Can there be anyone more glorious? Does he not look glorious as we consider how he has saved us? No longer on a cross. Indeed, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. In majesty ruling the nations. Oh, my friends, see, behold the beauty and the glory of your God. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we do marvel that your ways are not our ways, they are past finding out. Your ways are higher than the heavens are above the earth. And yet your ways are most glorious. Father, we, we've only scratched the surface as we've considered these things. But Father, we magnify you for what we see and what we know. We thank you for the glory of Christ and the glory of his cross. We, we thank you for his completed work on our behalf. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.